You're on Radio 1, 91 FM, your weekly political show with myself, Abe, and George. And we are fortunate enough to be joined in the studio by Dr. Rhonda Zaharna, the professor of public communication at American University in Washington, D.C. And she is in town to speak at the annual Otago Foreign Policy School. Uh, kicking off tomorrow, taking place this weekend that we spoke about before. Thanks for joining us. Wonderful to be here. Now, you are a specialist in, uh, well, according to your profile, public diplomacy and strategic communication. Um, those are sort of, uh, I guess, those terms could be interpreted in lots of different ways. How do you define them? That's interesting that you said that they can be interpreted in different ways. Public diplomacy is how nations communicate in the public arena. Strategic communication was connected to public relations. Now it's really become more of a military term. Mm. And so what, so what do you mean by that? I guess because um, when we think about, you know, uh, public diplomacy, especially this day and age, um, well, the Wikipedia definition is... Uh, communication designed not only to inform but also to influence and in politics uh, geopolitics uh, nation states seek to influence not only each other but the population bases of friendly and enemy nations uh, to to move agendas forward um, tell us a little about that well that's exactly right that's exactly right yeah we're looking for instructors so if you want to join us um, yeah that's, that's exactly right um, and it is a switch from the traditional diplomacy that was mostly aimed at governments the public diplomacy mostly aimed at and it's interesting foreign publics and that's a western viewpoint if you look at other countries um, particularly in the east they start with their domestic public and then look to influence foreign publics. Um, so that's so public diplomacy focused on the public. So I guess this, this change is, is tied with uh, globalization and um, new communication technologies with uh, these countries taking uh, social media more seriously and therefore the population social senses. media is yeah. an obsession yeah yeah well <laughs> social media is it's, and now it's all um uh digital diplomacy mm. and uh diplomats are scrambling yeah. to get their twitter handle yeah, yeah. to get to check their facebook all the jargon's page. changed as well so i mean how, how you you say they're obsessed with it how important is it because this seems to be a central debate when it comes to especially um new political movements like the Arab Spring and uh, the Occupy movement and in Hong Kong and in the US and, and stuff like that. It seems to be that the that social media, um, you know... Is a driving it, force. Is a driving force, yeah, and there's a debate about whether it is or not. I mean, it, is it as important? Why, why, the, why the obsession? Why the obsession? You know, that's one of the reasons why I'm here. <laughs> what I'm going to talk about is that I think there's a Western-centric um, approach to it where it's just focused on media and messages. Mm. And if we can just get our media and messages right, then we can influence the world. Um, but I see in other 
other ways of communicating, relationships are important. And so just taking a more relational approach, and I'm not talking basic um, cultural diplomacy, but just watching the relational cues. Mm. And so, um, but there is still very much in, in, as a Western driving force, the focus on digital, mm. digital diplomacy now. That's, that's the big phrase. Now, in a, in a previous era, mm-hmm. we might have called, um, you know, strategic communication designed to influence a foreign population. The uh, P word. Yes, propaganda. <laughs> um, now, you know, in the media, it's only propaganda if it's coming from the wrong side. Right. Um, talk a little bit about that paradigm. Um, and, and you're exactly right there about, um, and this is what I wrote about in some, that it depends on the source. Propaganda was by, designed by the source. Who was, who was saying it? And if it was your enemy, it was definitely propaganda. The way I look at propaganda, um, not because of persuasion, because public relations is persuasion, um, advertising is persuasion, marketing is persuasion, public diplomacy is persuasion. The thing about public diplomacy is it's optional. It, it, it's, there's an option. Um, it's persuasive. It's open. And if it's not open, you're going to lose credibility. It's not forced down the throat it's of the publics. It's not coercive. Yeah. Propaganda is if I drop a leaflet saying that I'm going to bomb this area, and you've got that, that piece of paper in your hand, and that's designed to influence, mm-hmm. and it's coercive. It's, you know, I either get out or, well, maybe they're just fooling, and I'll stick around. Well, so that, so that, and another thing about uh, propaganda is that the source, and this is the way I define um, the source is hidden. I right. don't know who dropped that leaflet, and it could be designed to start rumors. It could be um, deliberately to confuse, which is, makes it beautiful for wartime or mm. unstable situations. But for public diplomacy, which is also used in wartime, but it's got to be open and public. Mm-hmm. And, and that's one thing that, that nations struggle with is credibility. Because without that credibility, and that's what any public persuasion, if I don't have credibility, I've, I've got a problem. Now, the the lack of um, sort of a coercion, I mm-hmm. guess, is what you, um, you know, uh, how to separate propaganda from the rest. But, I mean, don't all advertising and marketing techniques in this day and age, all influence operations necessarily involve some sort of... Um, psychological cues meant to coerce that's different i mean i see it as different sure other other people yeah explain that a little the way i see it is if and that's why it's so competitive they want to grab that market share because of the voluntary nature of it if i don't like your product if i don't like pepsi i'll go coke if i don't like this one i'll do that i'll switch the channel Public diplomacy, you can switch the channel. But I guess in the field of neuromarketing, we've seen a big development of, um, you know, basically corporate entities trying to make people caught, believe. And they got caught. What was it? Who was, who was the one? Was it Google? Um, sometime, or was it Google or Facebook, where they did something with, they were Manipulating doing, the news feeds of Facebook, yeah. And when they got a hold of it, because that's where they, you know, that's the thing about coercion. Our, our public, it tries to be under the radar that nobody knows. And once you get caught, and the public knows about it, that's where you know you get into trouble. 
And so that's that's why I I do see a difference. I know people don't, but the thing about it is with with the with coercion, if you get caught, you know, who cares? Right. <laughs> uh, but public diplomacy, you get caught. So you, you just lost your credibility, and, and then you're going to have to try to find a way to get it back. So you have faith that people will, you know, utilize that choice if, if the source's credibility is, is damaged. What if the, you know... Well, <laughs> it doesn't even have to be public diplomacy. It can be regular, uh, you know, campaigning, yeah. political campaigning, and you would like to think, but, you know, it's always going to be selective perception. You know, and that's a different, that's another different tool. Mm. Selective perception. People, even if I transform it and do everything, they can take exactly what I intended to be good it, and yeah. switch it. That's the thing. People have have the power to ignore certain certain facts mm-hmm. <laughs> if, it, if it helps their view. But but I do feel like, um, you know, in, in just, I guess, you know, non-political marketing in general... Um, over, say, the last hundred years of history, there's been a switch from uh, selling people what they need to tricking people into thinking they need something. And I feel like those same sort of techniques, you know, um, mass psychology, um, you know, uh, crowd behavior, those those mechanisms of influence have been studied by not only marketers, but by um, military planners, politicians. Oh, oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I, I couldn't agree more. In fact, that's what a lot of the, the counterterrorism strategy is focused. I mean, they're drawing from that same type of research, how to use that research to, to develop counter, counter strategies. Um, but yes, but th- th- that's the thing about communication. Um, these persuasive techniques can be used in marketing. They can be used uh, for commercial ends, for political, for social ends. If I've got a disease and I want to educate the public, I'm going to try to pull in creative ways to get people to um, to boil the water because that's where the disease is. And, and they can't see the germs. I've got to convince them of something that they can't see. So coming up with the soap that turns your hands blue mm-hmm. and that you can see that the germs are gone or something that you see <laughs> the germs are there. So these type of techniques are used. Um, it's not, I, I look at, they're techniques and tools. My pencil is a tool, and the cursive writing, the other are different techniques. You can use it to write a and word, or you can use it to stab someone in the eye. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I didn't go that far, but, but it's the same thing with it. I see, I see our communication tools. It's the people behind the tools, the intent behind the tools. So is there a specific region of the world where you're, where you're focused on in, in your research and your work? Um. It has been the Middle East. Mm. Um, I, I I also been focused on Asia, but I just I, I do I start out in intercultural, but mostly through the the Middle East, yeah. the Arab world. We on the show we uh, obviously we talk a lot about about Syria. Mm. Um, what 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 is the, the 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 practical connection between public diplomacy and and Syria? Where where's where's the the practical application of these of of public diplomacy 
or you know d do you have recommendations for the that is that is really an illustrative case of the competitiveness of of public diplomacy um, it's not just the warring on the ground it's the warring on the media the narratives and competing the, narratives the competing narratives and something that's very interesting is um, there's focusing on social media but and this started after um, Iraq where there was a lot of media enterprises that just went in and they did television stations because television is is popular mm. and you have no idea who the news who's making right. who's making who's doing those programs yeah. and it could be like um, other areas where a lot of the Twitter Twitter feed or Twitter um, doesn't pick up on it well no um, the content is not locally produced mm -hmm. it's produced outside the region and pumped in and so that is that see now that goes in that you gets very close to propaganda when you don't know the source well and this comes back to that question of credibility so mm -hmm. you know psychological techniques to influence people for a reason that's good mm -hmm. is good using those techniques to consolidate your power at the expense of the people is obviously bad and that's where it comes to what you're saying about the source and the credibility I guess well let me I want to put in another thing just the whole idea of selective perception our media's become very personalized um, there's a wonder um, it, it's not there used to be a wonderful theory of and stop me if I go on theory but the <laughs> spiral of silence that what became the dominant in the media the those that were in the minority would go quiet but now we have this daily me I can find millions that the numbers on the the digital media the numbers are so astronomical that people think it's no longer just me I can just do it and say it and think I have a big crowd mm. and so it just distorts the whole picture. It's not just the good guys, the bad guys. People self-select their media. Mm -hmm. It's not that I can just ram it down anybody's throat anymore. It's not yeah. like I can create this, you know, um, illusion. But that can cut both ways, can it? I mean, it can cut all kinds of ways. And especially with the situation in Syria, there's, you know, kind of... Um, competing narratives i'm going to oversimplify it greatly but you know either the migration crisis is all assad's fault mm -hmm. or it's all this us uh, all the fault of meddling foreign powers that mm -hmm. screwed syria up in the first place and mm -hmm. um you know you you can get those narratives depending on which one you're sort of more inclined to believe in the first place as you said you can and choose build it, build and it, build it, build it, builds build it builds and builds and builds but but say rt would be considered you know propaganda, uh, Russia Today, mm -hmm. um, you know, selling uh, one type of narrative, whereas, you know, uh, information produced outside the country um, or, you know, maybe, well, the classic corollary to RT would be, say, Voice of America. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's often spun as giving desperate people the information they need See, that's I being withheld from them. Those, those are relatively calm because RT, um, I, I know Russia today, and so yeah, it I, says it's from so, Russia. So it, see, already I know the source. BBC, I know the source. 
and and that's one of the reasons where I got into studying all of this. I was my grandfather. He used to listen. He would be in the Middle East, and he would listen to all the ones, and he says, okay, listen to the words here, listen to the words here, listen how they're saying here. And so everybody, everybody, all the locals knew how to interpret the news based <laughs> on just the vocabulary they were using, yeah. the way things were phrased, which we would know that here, mm. you know. Um, so it's just—it's not just the source; it's the way it's interpreted locally. It's very much the way it's interpreted. But when you have these ones where you don't know, mm -hmm. right? All of a sudden, there's a new television station. Oh, cool! And it has very, very polished graphics. Yeah, really dynamic, and it's appealing. But we don't know where it came from. Well, and I guess this is the criticism of some of the, you know, the the Syria stuff. Um, you get a lot of YouTube videos coming out in the heat of a conflict. Some say this is Assad killing, you know, innocent people, and then later it might turn out that it was actually a Western-sponsored militia, uh, or you know, it's. Um, but it it brings me back to you know, uh, I guess a decade and a half ago, um, the classic film Wag the Dog. Oh, um, was that a decade and a half ago? Yeah, ninety nine. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh, we're in trouble because <laughs> we haven't moved anywhere from that needle. <laughs> yeah, but I guess the um, as you say, you know, when when you don't know the source, things like Twitter, things like Facebook, things like YouTube, anyone can create a fake account. Right. Um, there's no way to know where it's from, and in the same way that that has, um, you know, democratized movements like the Arab Spring because the dictators weren't credible, and mm -hmm. people were um, all of a sudden able to get access to information that they mm -hmm. found more credible, mm -hmm. and then make up their mind using that free choice, that mm -hmm. agency that they have. Um, it can go the other way. It can be flooded with, you know, fake statistics. Um, it can be very flooded. It can be very flooded, and that's that's where there's been a focus on the tools. How do we to use the tools and seizing the tools? Um, I'm looking for um, a new error in research where, okay, people have got the tools. We figured out how to, you know, make the lead in the pencil. Now, what do we do with? We don't even all of the media effects and strategic. Um, analysis that would have been done before, I think now we're going to have to be rethinking them. That what I said about the spiral of silence, mm. that was a major theory that dominated um, for several, I mean, it's for several decades. Well, now that spiral of silence has been broken because people can just flood it with their own daily me. So, so where do we go next on that? And, and that's why I love my field. I love <laughs> communication. Yeah. So any communication majors out there, yes. <laughs> Well, and I guess um, another question would be, who who is interested in this type of academic analysis? Because you're presenting at the Otago Foreign Policy School, mm. you've presented at a lot of uh, symposia in the past, and um, I mean, I think it would be fair to say, as a professor at American University in Washington, D.C., you've rubbed shoulders with um, those who might be called, quote, the establishment. Um, <laughs> why are they interested in this? Oh, well the digital side they're desperate to learn how to use the new tools which i can't even use my telephone <laughs> right I'm not, yeah i'm not much help in that um but they want to know how to talk with publics um 
they want to influence the environment, um, the political environment. Um, also, if you look at one thing I find intriguing, and I love culture so much, is that a lot of the intelligence failures are not because of a lack of information, it's because of an interpretation of that information. Sure. And so understanding just the different way, different ways of communicating. I know they have their agenda, um, but I also have my agenda too. Sure. And, and I'm one of those that, um, the old Star Trek, I, I do believe that, <laughs> that there's, there's ways to get along, just as ways that communication can be an instrument of war. I don't think it's been studied enough to be an instrument of of peace mm. um, and and if you think about it why is it that you know someone say an instrument of war and that makes logical sense but somehow it's a pie in the sky if it's the opposite mm -hmm. it's like where is that mentality coming sure. from where is sure. and, and then where's that cultural coming from so well, and I guess that brings me to a uh, maybe a somewhat controversial question. You know, Facebook, is it a, um, well, and we've talked about tools and, and how they can be used. And obviously it has potential as a tool, um, mm -hmm. you know, for the betterment of humanity. But I guess with all media, there's this um, issue of, you know, corporate capture, shall we say. Mm -hmm. um, Still, regardless of the democratization of social media, most people don't intuitively believe something unless it's coming from a mainstream media organization. Right. And right. those are still owned by corporations yep. Yep. that have interlocking directorships with the military-industrial yep. complex. Yep. H how do we reconcile that? Um what do I say? I hate to be trite, but power to the people. <laughs> yeah, just recognize it and try to move forward on that well, basis. Well, you know, if you look at, there's some exciting work going on in um, uh, in crowdsourcing, mm -hmm. uh, in gaming, gaming for community building. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also, um, I'm thinking that, you know, it, it looks like it is a big thing, the, the corp corporate capturing. But, you know, if you think about Facebook and a fascinating um, study now, or, or example now, is what's happening in India. Um, India, Facebook went in big time and wanted to do this free internet. Right, where they got everybody's private data as well. <laughs> and what happened to that campaign? Facebook didn't win. Yeah. That's the thing. And that's a wonderful case study because it's corporates moving in and India is it's going to be a case study of is the government going to be able to to have some say in how the internet is and so what were the main strategic communication lessons to be taken from that Facebook in India case study would you say I mean you know I didn't study it enough to yeah um, I, I just saw what was going on and it was like um, you know that's where maybe a relational approach did work because there's things that the media says and and I always use this example before even before the Facebook and all of that if I say okay now we're gonna everybody um, well I was gonna say we dye their hair blue but now it's become a fad <laughs> years ago but the first thing that people I say if I want to say everybody dye their hair blue what would be the first thing you would do 
you'd go to your friends and say, hey, I'm thinking about dyeing my hair blue. And, it, and if everybody else said it, then it became okay. But it's not like somebody went on the media and say, okay, we want everybody. Right. This is the color. That doesn't work anymore. You know, I don't know that it ever did. Sure. That's the, that's the whole thing, that we're embedded in social n- networks. And so, um, and that's why they say the bullet theory never worked, that we could just shoot messages mm. into people. But there's still that thinking that somehow that these digital tools and the corporates are so powerful that they can influence and manipulate publics. And it may be some publics. Mm. Some, not others, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that is, um, that's very interesting. Interesting enough to make me very excited to come see your talk at the Foreign <laughs> Policy School and hopefully more of our listeners as well. 